Section 23 of The Plain Speaker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mark Michelson. The Plain Speaker. Opinions on Books, Men, and Things. By William Hazlitt. Section 23. On the Qualifications Necessary to Success in Life. Part 1. On the qualifications necessary to success in life. It is curious to consider the diversity of men's talents, and the causes of their failure or success, which are not less numerous and contradictory than their pursuits in life. Fortune does not always smile on merit. The race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong. And even where the candidate for wealth or honors succeeds, it is as often perhaps from the qualifications which he wants as from those which he possesses or the eminence which he is lucky enough to attain is owing to some faculty or acquirement, which neither he nor anybody else suspected. There is a balance of power in the human mind, by which defects frequently assist in furthering our views. As superfluous excellence are converted into the nature of impediments, and again there is a continual substitution of one talent for another, through which we mistake the appearance for the reality and judge, by implication, of the means from the end. So a minister of state wields the House of Commons by his manner alone, while his friends and his foes are equally at a loss to account for his influence looking for it in vain, in the matter of style of his speeches. So the air with which a celebrated barrister waved a white Cambria handkerchief passed for eloquence. So the buffoon is taken for a wit. To be thought wise, it is for the most part only to seem so, and the noisy demagogue is easily translated, by the popular voice, into the orator and patriot. Qualities take their color from those that are next to them, as the chameleon borrows its hue from the nearest object, and unable otherwise to grasp the phantom of our choice or our ambition. We do well to lay our violent hands on something else within our reach, which bears a general resemblance to it and the impression of which, in proportion as the thing itself is cheap and worthless, is likely to be gross, obvious, striking, and effectual. The way to secure success is to be more anxious about obtaining than about deserving it. The surest hindrance to it is to have too high a standard of refinement in our own minds, or too high an opinion of the discernment of the public. He who is determined not to be satisfied with anything short of perfection will never do anything at all, either to please himself or others. The question is not what we ought to do, but what we can do for the best. An excess of modesty is in fact an excess of pride, and more hurtful to the individual, and less advantageous to society, than the grossest and most unblushing vanity. Aspiring to be gods, if angels fell, aspiring to be angels, men rebel. If a celebrated artist in our day had stayed to do justice to his principal figure in a generally admired painting, before he had exhibited it, it would have never seen the light. He has passed on to other things more within his power to accomplish, and more within the competence of the spectators to understand. They see what he has done, which is a great deal they could not have judged of, or given him credit for, the ineffable idea in his own mind, 
which he might vainly have devoted his whole life in endeavouring to embody. The picture, as it is, is good enough for the age and for the public. If it had been ten times better, its merits would have been thrown away. If it had been ten times better in the more refined and lofty conception of character and sentiment, and had failed in the more palpable appeal to the senses and prejudices of the vulgar, in the usual appliances and means to boot, it would never have done. The work might have been praised by a few, a very few, and the artist himself have pined in penury and neglect. Mr. Wordsworth has given us the essence of poetry in his works without the machinery. The apparatus of poetic diction, the theatrical pomp, the conventional ornaments, and we see what he has made of it. The weight of fame through merit alone is the narrowest, the steepest, the longest, the hardest of all others. That it is the most certain and lasting is even in doubt. The most sterling reputation is, after all, but a species of imposture. As for ordinary cases of success and failure, they depend on the slightest shades of character or turn of accident some trick not worth an egg there's but the twinkling of a star betwixt a man of peace and war a thief and justice fool and knave a huffing officer and a slave a crafty lawyer and pickpocket a great philosopher and a blockhead a formal preacher and a player a learned physician and manslayer men are in numberless instances qualified for certain things for no other reason than because they are qualified for nothing else. Negative merit is the passport to negative success. In common life, the narrowness of our ideas and appetites is more favorable to the accomplishment of our designs, by confining our attention and ambition to one single object, than a greater enlargement of comprehension or susceptibility of taste, which, as far as the trammels of custom and routine of business are concerned, only operate as diversions to our ensuring the main chance, and, even in the pursuit of arts and science, a dull, plodding fellow will often do better than one of a more mercurial and fiery cast. The mere unconsciousness of his own deficiencies, or of anything beyond what he himself can do, reconciles him to his mechanical progress, and enables him to perform all that lies in his power, with labor and patience. By being content with mediocrity, he advances beyond it, whereas the man of a greater taste, or genius, may be supposed to fling down his pen or pencil in despair, haunted with the idea of unattainable excellence, and ends in being nothing, because he cannot be everything at once. Those even who have done the greatest things were not always perhaps the greatest men. To do any given work, a man should not be greater in himself than the work he has to do. The faculties which he has beyond this will be facilities to let, either not used or used idly and unprofitably, to hinder, not to help. To do any one thing best, there should be an exclusiveness, a concentration, a bigotry, a blindness of attachment to that one object, so that the widest range of knowledge and most diffusive subtlety of intellect will not uniformly produce the most beneficial results. And the performance is very frequently in the inverse ratio, not only of the pretensions, as we might superficially conclude, but of the real capacity. 
a part is greater than the whole and this old saying seems to hold true in moral and intellectual questions also in nearly all that relates to the mind of man which cannot embrace the whole but only a part i do not think to give an instance or two of what i mean that milton's mind was so to speak greater than the paradise lost it was just big enough to fill that mighty mould the shrine contained the godhead shakespeare's genius was i should say greater than anything he has done because it still soared free and unconfined beyond whatever he undertook ran over and could not be constrained by mastery of his subject goldsmith in his retaliation celebrates burke as one who was kept back in his dazzling wayward career by the supererogation of his talents though equal to all things for all things unfit too nice for a statesman too proud for a wit dr johnson in boswell's life tells us that the only person whose conversation he ever sought for improvement was george salmanser yet who knows anything of this extraordinary man now but that he wrote about twenty volumes of the universal history invented a formosan alphabet and vocabulary being a really learned man contrived to pass for an impostor and died no one knows how or where the well-known author of the inquiry concerning political justice in conversation has not a word to throw at a dog all the stores of his understanding or genius he reserves for his books and he has need of them otherwise there would be a hiatus in manuscriptus he says little and that little were better left alone being both dull and nonsensical his talk is as flat as a pancake there is no leaven in it he has not dough enough to make a loaf and a cake he has no idea of anything till he is wound up like a clock not to speak but to write and then he seems like a person risen from sleep or from the dead the author of the diversions of Purley, on the other hand besides being the inventor of the theory of grammar was a politician a wit a master of conversation and overflowing with an indeterminable babble that fellow had cut and come again in him and tongue with a garnish of brains but it only served as an excuse to cheat posterity of the definition of a verb by one of those conversational ruse de guerre by which he put off his guest at wimbledon with some teasing equivoque which he would explain the next time they met and made him die at last with a nostrum in his mouth the late professor porson was said to be a match for the member of old serum in argument and raillery he was a profound scholar and had a wit at will yet what did it come to his jest have evaporated with marks of the wine on the tavern table the page of thucydides or aeschylus which was stamped on his brain and which he could read there with equal facility backwards or forwards is contained after his death as it was while he lived just as well in the volume of the library shelf the man of perhaps the greatest ability now living is the one who has not only done the least but who is actually incapable of ever doing anything worthy of him unless he had a hundred hands to write with and a hundred mouths to utter all that it hath entered into his heart to conceive and centuries before him to embody the endless volume of his waking dreams cloud rolls over cloud one train of thought suggests and is driven away by another theory after theory is spun out of the bowels of his brain not like the spider's web compact and round 
a citadel and a snare, built for mischief and for use, but like the gossamer, stretched out and entangled without end, clinging to every casual object, flitting in the idle air, and glittering only in the ray of fancy. No subject can come amiss to him, and he is alike attracted and alike indifferent to all. He is not tied down to any one particular, but floats from one to another, his mind everywhere, finding its level, and feeling no limit but that of thought, now soaring with its head above the stars, now treading with fairy feet among flowers, now winnowing the air with winged words, passing from Dun Scotus to Jacob Bayman, from the Kantian philosophy to a conundrum, and from the apocalypse to an acrostic, taking in the whole range of poetry, painting, wit, history, politics, metaphysics, criticism, and private scandal, every question giving birth to some new thought, and every thought discoursed in eloquent music, that lives only in the ear of fools, or in the report of absent friends, set him to write a book, and he belies all that has ever been said about him. Ten thousand great ideas filled his mind, but with the clouds they fled, and left no trace behind. Now there is, who never had an idea in his life, and who therefore has never been prevented by the fastidious refinements of self-knowledge, or the dangerous seductions of the muse, from succeeding in a number of things which he has attempted, to the utmost extent of his dullness, and contrary to the advice and opinion of all his friends. He has written a book without being able to spell, by dint of asking questions, has painted draperies with great exactness, which have passed for finished portraits, daubs in an unaccountable figure or two, with a background, and on due deliberation calls it history. He is dubbed an associate, after being twenty times blackballed, wins his way to the highest honors of the academy, through all the gradations of discomfiture and disgrace, and may end in being a foreign count. And yet, such is the principle of distributed justice in matters of taste. He is just where he was. We judge of men not what they do, but by what they are. Non exquilibet, ligno fit mercurius. Having once got an idea of, it is impossible that anything he can do should ever alter it. Though he would paint, like Raphael and Michelangelo, no one in the secret would give him credit for it. And, though he had all knowledge, and could speak with the tongues of angels, yet without genius he would be nothing. The original sin of being what he is renders his good works and most meritorious efforts null and void. You cannot gather grapes of thorns, nor figs of thistles. Nature still prevails over art. You look at, as you do at a curious machine, which performs certain puzzling operations, and as your surprise ceases, gradually unfolds other powers which you would little expect. But, do what it will, it is but a machine still. The thing is without a soul. Respice finem is the great rule in all practical pursuits. To attain our journey's end, we should look little to the right or to the left. The knowledge of excellence as often deters and distracts, as it stimulates the mind to exertion. And hence we may see some reason, why the general diffusion of taste and liberal arts is not always accompanied with an increase of individual genius. As there is a degree of dullness and phlegm 
which, in the long run, sometimes succeed better than the more noble and aspiring impulses of our nature, as the beagle by its sure tracing overtakes the bounding stag. So there is a degree of animal spirits, and showy accomplishment, which enables its possessors to get the start of the majestic world, and bear the palm alone. How often do we see vivacity and impertinence mistaken for wit, fluency for argument, sound for sense, a loud or musical voice for eloquence. Impudence, again, is an equivalent for courage, and the assumption of merit and the possession of it are too often considered as one and the same thing. On the other hand, simplicity of manner reduces the person who cannot so far forego his native disposition as by any effort to shake it off, to perfect insignificance in the eyes of the vulgar, who, if you do not seem to doubt your own pretensions, will never question them. And on the same principle, if you do not try to palm yourself on them for what you are not, will never be persuaded that you can be anything. Admiration, like mocking, is catching, and the good opinion which gets abroad of us begins at home. If a man is not so much astonished at his own acquirements, as proud of, and as delighted with the bauble, as others would be if put into sudden possession of it, they hold that true desert, and he must be strangers to each other. If he entertains an idea beyond his own immediate profession or pursuit, they think very wisely he can know nothing at all. If he does not play off the quack or the coxum among them at every step, they are confident he is a dunce and a fellow of no pretensions. It has been sometimes made a matter of surprise that Mr. Pitt did not talk politics out of the house, or that Mr. Fox conversed like anyone else on common subjects, or that Sir Walter Scott is fonder of an old Scotch ditty or an antiquarian record, than of listening to the praises of the author of Waverley. On the contrary, I cannot conceive how any one who feels conscious of certain powers should always be laboring to convince others of the fact, or how a person, to whom their exercise is as familiar as the breath he draws, should think it worth his while to convince them of what to him must seem very simple, and at the same time so very evident. I should not wonder, however, if the author of the Scotch novels laid an undue stress on the praises of the monastery. We nurse the rickety child, and prop up our want of self-confidence by the opinion of friends. A man, unless he is a fool, is never vain, but when he stands in need of the tribute of adulation, to strengthen the hollowness of his pretensions, nor conceited, but when he can find no one to flatter him, and is obliged secretly to pamper his good opinion of himself, to make up for the want of sympathy in others, a damned author has the highest sense of his own merits, and has an inexpressible contempt for the judgment of his contemporaries, in the same manner that an actor who is hissed or hooted from the stage creeps into exquisite favor with himself, in proportion to the blindness and injustice of the public. A prose writer, who has been severely handled in the reviews, will try to persuade himself that there is nobody else who can write a word of English. And we have seen a poet of our time, whose works have been much, but not, as he thought, sufficiently admired, undertake formally to prove that no poet, who deserved the name of one, was ever popular in his lifetime, or scarcely after his death. End of section 23, part 1